Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Daniel Howitt's interviews with the writer and director for Flora and Son, John Carney, and the film's songwriter and composer, Gary Clark. Young Max, one more offense and you'll be behind bars. Flora, you're his mother. Find him something to do. What are you doing right now? You don't want to know. You are a great mother. Am I? Happy birthday. What's that? It's yours. Don't want to play. Since when am I guitarist? I can't go on like this. Living in a shoebox with a kid who hates me. Can't wait for the day I don't have to be here. Go on! Go back to your dad! I might learn the guitar myself. That's just too funny. Takes years of practice. Commitment. Are you really going to talk to me about commitment? We're ready to teach you how to shred the knob on guitar. So you want to learn the guitar? This is a gift you can take to your grave. What's your problem? I didn't know I had a problem. You're teaching guitar online, love. What are you hoping to get out of this? I thought this guitar might make me son think I'm cool. I'll be back in an hour. I don't care. How annoying is he? Very annoying. What is that? Shh. Jesus Christ, it's like a club in here. Turn it down a second. Was that yours? How did you make that? It sounded epic. John, on, it is girl. such a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I can't tell you how much your movies have meant to me over the years. And so this is really, really excited to chat with you. Oh, great. Thanks. I'm glad you, they resonate with you. Absolutely. And, and so does Flora and Son, another, another success. Well, let's start with Flora herself. It seems like in writing the character, it seems like maybe you had to walk a really fine line. You know, she starts the film, you know, pretty horrific to her son in a lot of ways and, you sure. know, unlikable in a lot of ways. But still, over the period of the film, you know, she manages to be lovable and you want to see her change. Were you ever uh, worried that she might be too unlikable? I mean, <clears throat> no, I wasn't worried that she was too unlikable. No, I was... um because I think you can come back from a lot in a film, like in real life. I just didn't want her to be like psychologically, there's a difference between like lashing out in that way at your kid or screaming or using bad language or smashing the guitar against a wall. There are kind of things that are irresponsible, questionable for sure, but they're not like, it's not like she's systematic about it. I think when people are systematic, they're hard. It's hard to redeem somebody because there's like a plan behind it, and it's like a continuous, psychologically 
traumatizing your kid or something like that. Um, so I kind of forgive Flora in a way, because I forgive moms and dads when I see them on the street and they're doing something really stupid with their kid. And you kind of get a sense they're not a bad person. You know, they're just in this, because actually probably people who are really bad to their kids are probably bad at home. And they're probably not going to show that outside. So when you see somebody like losing it or flipping out or whatever with their kid, I, I kind of feel like it's so easy. To, it's so tempting to judge them and be sort of holier than thou. But and, and any time I've been with my kid and we've like had some sort of dispute when they were smaller, there's something going on. I'm so grateful when you just get a look from somebody that's like, I know, and it passes rather than a like, oh, my God, you know. Um, and I see Flora more in that in that camp where it's like you can't like I didn't want to have her do anything that was like she's like planning the damage that she's doing. It, it's more like she's letting it happen and she doesn't know and and she she needs to get it before it's out of control. And she does. Uh, no, I appreciate that compassion. I've got I've got twin four year olds at home, so I've needed a lot of that uh, compassion wow. from Barrett as well. Well, obviously, music is just at the core of Flora and Son. At what point in the writing process do you start working on the music? Do you have like placeholders in the script for where you know you're going to have some moments of music, or how does how do you incorporate the two? Yeah, no, I I normally start off being pretty sure uh, about my characters and the tone and the story to 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 a pretty good degree. It doesn't have to be sort of finished and written. This was tricky. It took a while to find the music for this. Um, but I tend, I think the rule is, you know, you have to have your characters and your story and then put your songs in. Other way, otherwise, it's a kind of a jukebox musical where you're like stringing together all these songs that are already written with a super thin narrative that just gets you through. Um, so I find if you put the work into the story first and your personality and all of that, then then you're in a win-win situation because you're only going to embellish it by when at the stage where you add music. Do you have like specific playlists or or albums that you listen to more during productions of your films? Or was there were there artists that spoke to you more during Flora and Son? I don't listen to music anymore at all. I very, very, very rarely listen to music. Hmm. Um, I don't know why that is, but like I, I just I, I listen to classical music on my record player when I can get away from, when when the kids are done or whatever, and I'll put put it on. But I, the days of sticking on rock and roll, they just I just or you know listening to music on my headphones it's very rarely because I feel like um it's kind of my job now is is music and film. So whenever I'm listening to music, it's it's with work in, <clears throat> in mind. I had enough years. I had three decades of joyful music listening. Sure. I, so I don't have the time now, but I've, if, if I'm being honest, I don't really have the inclination to, to, to get into new music or to put on albums in the way that I did in the past. Sadly, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I definitely didn't expect that to be the answer. You've made so many films, well, multiple films, about the impact of music on youth specifically youth and teenagers yeah um how did music impact your life as as a kid hugely um and 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 at many junctures you know many different times in different ways and different styles of music had massive effects on me you know i went through a whole you know tom waits frank sinatra kind of period of music um i love the great 
song American songbook. I was never a Beatles guy. I was never a U2 guy. I was never into, you know, Guns N' Roses when all the kids in my school were in that kind of like late 80s thing. I I I I I I'm weird. I have like I'm mad about jazz music. Um I love classical music. But I I mean the big moments for me were were uh yeah, kind of emotional states, like music that could get you into an emotional state that nothing else could get you into. Mm. Yeah, like it's like there are keys to parts of your heart that are locked that that are kind of locked up a little bit, and music is like lets them out, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. One of those amazing moments for Flora is um, when Jeff sends her both sides now as her you know her homework, and she has this amazing moment. Exactly like you're saying, unlocking her heart there. Was was it always both sides now for that moment? Or did you entertain, you know, some other tracks that might do that for Flora? Yeah, I did. It, well, it wasn't always that song. Mm. It was, it was uh, actually, it was John, Mar- it was a John Martin song called um, I Couldn't Love You More. And it didn't work when we, we shot it. And then it didn't work when we edited it into the movie because it undermined the Jeff character. Mm. You know, so to have Jeff fail which he does in the park, followed by another man succeeding to move Flora. Mm. When it was a man, because she's in a romantic place with Jeff, and in her head at least, when another man came along and blew her mind and made her cry, you, you, you were breaking a rule of cinema. You know, like a rule that you didn't know until you had broken it invisibly. You know, it's an invisible thing that you break, and you're like, oh, okay, Jesus, I didn't know that rule was there. You can't... I don't think you can have a, like a, a, an attractive love interest fail and then be followed by another um, suitor or whatever. You know, you can't. It's very hard to go back to the first guy again. So we didn't want to undermine Joe's or Jeff's limited songwriting appeal by by having a, a you know John Martin blow her mind. So it was a woman singing. It ch- really changed the scene. Mm. And particularly like, you know, somebody like Joni Mitchell, who's all about the songs. And that's a thing we forget about now. And like now it's like, it's all about the show mm. and the songs can be secondary as just as long as they're songs. And we forget that people like Prince, who put on amazing shows and they were crazy shows, had 30 songs that were just the most incredible songs ever written. And the show was sort of secondary to that. Hmm. It's like people who used to watch Mad Men and think that it was all about the sexy clothes and the style. And you're like, no, that happens to be there, but it's actually about brilliant writing and acting. Hmm. You And and sometimes you, you, if you take away the brilliant writing and acting of Mad Men, you've just got a bunch of guys in suits chasing pretty girls in, in 50s or 60s clothes and smoking and drinking. You have nothing. And likewise, if you take away the really good song, you're just left with people jumping around a stage to music and calling that entertainment. Whereas Joni Mitchell there is still and static and beautiful and the song is put forward and it's in the front of stage. She's she's able to stand back and let the song do its thing. And that has a big effect on the Eve character in the film because she's used to the sort of bombast of X Factor or The Voice or these shows that are all about winning 
and being the best and following your dreams. And here's here's a classic piece of Canadian songwriting is, is, is a 20th century gem, like a Gershwin song or like a, you know, a, a Lillian Hellman play or like a, it's a classic. Another another very specific moment that I wanted to ask about, a line that I, I thought was funny. When Flora and Jeff, at right after they write, meet in the middle, you know, Flora's kind of expressing that she's feeling some romance here. And she says, uh, it's it's like you're in A Star is Born. Look at A Star is Born. And yeah. Jeff says, not if I don't have to. Right. Uh, well, I was just curious where that line came from. Are you not a Star is Born fan? You trying to get me in trouble. Uh, you know, look, I'm just here asking questions. <laughs> I am a star is born by George Cukor with Judy Garland and James Mason fan. Yeah. And while I think that the, the new star is born is very well made and extremely plausible, you know, in the music and the set pieces and how he did the music is extremely like convincing and very, very well done. You know, and I think they're both beautiful and talented and I like seeing them together. You know, I like to look at her and he's, he's, gorgeous and all the rest of it it left me feeling a little bit like and I know it's it's it has to kind of be a star is born so it has to be about a star and all of that it but it did leave me feeling like the one thing that he forgot to sort of modernize and bring up to date was the idea that making it and being on stage in front of a billion people is not what it's about Hmm. and and Instead, it seemed to sort of double down on that, just the magic, the sheer acceptance that that to be loved and beloved, you know, and write your genius and the world will accept it seems a bit one dimensional to me. And in the other in all of the myriad ways they did bring it up to date, which was really cool in terms of the making of the film, they they sort of over for me overlooked that because I just don't care about successful, famous people. I just don't care about their stories. There's so many of them now. And they're like, no more than I care about billionaires. Hmm. You know, the, the the most interesting stories in the world right now are the people trying to get into this country that are being pushed back and not brought in. Can you imagine what their stories are like? Hmm. Stories is what we really want. Their stories are like Dickens stories. You know, they're like adventure stories with tragedy and death and awful things happening but they're incredible human stories i have no interest in billionaires and really even pop stars i mean they're fine but they they get enough absolutely well you know very long that was a very long answer to did you like (laughs) did you like a star is born (laughs) no i look i just wanted to know where the line came from i i appreciate that that was helpful you know i think there are a handful of directors who have such a like distinct style or, or type of film that you can really stamp their name on it, you know, Wes Anderson and Tarantino. And I really feel like John Carney film is is something you can really stamp your name on. And, and it makes me curious how you would define a John Carney film for yourself. That's interesting. I'm, I'm deeply flattered that I have, you know, a, a niche kind of furrow that I've that I've gone down it's it's great but I and in fact it's a good thing to do because it means you can feed your kids and you know you've got a little John Carney business going on there I'd suppose oh yeah you're so you're saying like what would I put on my shingle 
under my name, John Carney, and then the thing that I am, you know, doctor in law, you know, or you know, GP. Well, yeah, well, I'm curious if you if you have that definition in your in your head, or if you don't want one. Oh no, I don't care. I'm not precious about those things. I definitely at film festivals, like at Sundance, or this time at Toronto the other day, you sort of see that you do have because you're most of the time a writer's life is spent on you know on your own at home, and you're not sure. I can't ever, I sometimes can't believe if sometimes I'm reading something and I'll Google something that I'm writing, like a, a place in Dublin, and my name will come up just because we happen to film that. I'm like, Jesus, that's so weird that I have this pu slight public life that doesn't connect with this. But anyway, apart from that, you're basically on your own. You get to go to a film festival and meet an audience and then read reviews about who you are or what you do. And it's very discombobulating, but it's also very instructive and very helpful because it, it's good to see what your audience thinks of you and where you're going and to take hints from what people are saying and choose not to listen or to listen or, you know. So I'm happy that I'm making films that, you know, for, for now, the people, I'll tell you, the people that actually like my films seem to, they matter to them. It's not like they, it's not like you made a really goofy comedy and it was good fun for an hour and a half and it got, you know, and, and that's it. And you watch it maybe in five years time, which is fine. I love goofy comedies, by the way. I'm not disparaging by that. But I, I meet people and they're like, I've watched it eight times or, you know, my kid watched it and they formed a band or the, there's a really genuinely uplifting narrative after the film which I think if you have that, who wouldn't do that again? Like in the way that The Cure are like, they're the band that I would compare myself to as a filmmaker in a weird way. Um, if I was being audacious enough to, I think like that's a band that like, there's a gloom, there's a gloomy reality to, 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 to some of it. There's a natural unaffected thing but it's also joy, joyful rhythms and melodies, surprisingly like for, and the gothic dark thing is so boring to them, but obviously they, they created that somewhat or, you know, but actually they just write, they, they also write these beautiful pop songs mm -hmm. that are incredibly life affirming, but not just about, I met you on the street and yeah, you look beautiful, but it's like boys don't cry or in between days, there's a bittersweet truth and reality to it but it's like against such uplift hmm. I'd, li I'd like to do that i'd like to be in the cure that is an amazing description for your films i wouldn't have connected the two uh but that i think that fits so perfectly okay cool <laughs> does does studio filmmaking interest you you know i know um no no not remotely why is that um i don't think i'd have well let me see i don't think i'd have any control you know, real, realistically now, I think I know enough about the film industry to know that I just would not have control. And it's not about egomania or any of that. It's just about the dis the discipline of filmmaking and the reckies and location scouts and parking up the trucks. And that's not why I ever got involved in the film industry or, you know, in film. I actually hate that side of things. I hate being asked, where will we park the trucks if you're going to put? And I'm like, don't bring trucks. I didn't want trucks. I want a camera and two. And they're like, yeah, but for us to facilitate and help you, John, get your vision, we need to park the truck somewhere. So shut up and tell us where to park the trucks. So I'm like, park them over there. 
but I might move them over there on the day. <laughs> so no, I would not fit well into the studio system. I mean, they've offered tons of things. That's what I was going to ask. You know, I know you were attached to the Bee Gees movie for a little while. Was that one a hard one to let go? It was hard in the sense that I love, you know, the Bee Gees music and that some of that music was like unbelievably important to me. And I, you know, and they're genius, like those, you know, they have 10 of the best, best, most, most life affirming, beautiful songs, you know, so good. So that part was hard, but no, it's never hard to pull out of something that wants to be, I don't know, it's hard to, it's hard to say, like, you know, that starts off that big. That was my, that's the fear that like, it wants to be loved in so unanimously. I don't think that's where great movies come from. Like, I don't think Martin Scorsese ever made the movies that he made because he wanted to be Martin Scorsese, as we know him now. You know what I mean? He, 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 even though he's huge and the movies are global, he made them from a very independent filmmaker place. Not like an auteur place, because he's actually very collaborative. But from a, from a place of smallness. And and then they happen to they happen to grow, but you can't put. I, I, for me, anyway, I, I feel like if you make a studio film, you've already signed up to the fact that this has to be kind of huge to make sense. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Well, John, that's about my time. I am one of those people that you mentioned that has the experience with your films where they're so deeply meaningful. That's you know, great. they played a part in my life. So I just don't want to miss the opportunity to tell you thank you, really. Well, I appreciate that. That's what we that's what I do it for. So I'm very glad to connect. It's it's all it, it is what it's all about. Thank you. I appreciate it. Again, congratulations on Florence on and I appreciate your time. Thank you. See you at the next one. Why don't you ask her out? Can I try that on? It's too big. That's the look. Yeah, for turtles. She's totally out of my lake. Let's write a song. Just to hear your passion. Express yourself. She hated it. No, just get out of my way, woman. Gladly! I was 17 with a screaming child on me like... This can't be my story. But without him, I have nothing. We're living a How come the way things are are never enough for you? They never were. Playing the guitar, it's so sexy. Okay. Is that why you took it up? Well, let's focus on you. Are you coming on to me? 
Well, Gary, I have to tell you, it's such a pleasure to talk with you today. Sing Street is one of my all-time favorite movies, and Flora and Son had the exact same effect on me. I couldn't stop smiling, and uh, and of course, the music is a huge reason why, and so I'm just thrilled to talk with you today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad you got that, that from Flora as well, because... You know, you know, we don't know until we think we like it, and we, you know, we work right. on it. For a while. It's, it's, the reaction has been really beautiful, actually. So, as it should. Well, so obviously, music is at the core of Florence, and it's not—it's no afterthought. So, at what point into the filmmaking process did John bring you in and say, "Hey, let's start working on this"? He had this—he had a, an early version of the script, kind of pre-pandemic, and he'd shown it to me. We talked about certain aspects of the music and then it obviously went away and uh i think it was early 2022 when and he probably march or something he called me and said remember that screenplay about the uh mother and son flora i said of course and he said um it's getting made so let's talk about the music so i was thrilled to work with him again i love working with john just a blessing. And I, I said, okay, great. So let's, he sent me a, an updated script. We got on Zoom and we just walked through the script and kind of, the first thing was to really talk through the the big cornerstone songs of which obviously the, the song that they do on the rooftop together, Meet in the Middle is very important. The first song that, um, that Oren makes, I'm calling them, I'm, Actors' names. Max <laughs> makes very important. That's the, the Max's music video is very important because it's his message to the girl that he fancies. And then uh, the big song at the in the pub at the end is very important. So we sort of mapped out those cornerstone songs and then started basically ping pong and ideas backwards and forwards. We knew we had to get everything in the can before he started shooting and he started mm. shooting and i think it was june or july right and did you did you record all of the songs prior to shooting uh some of them are live um on set and the ones that we knew that we'd have to do playback uh yes we have to have them recorded but they're still tweakable after that so we had versions of them that were uh, far enough along that you could shoot to them but then when we started to watch Russia's Back it actually had quite an effect on particularly the musical arrangements because we wanted it to really feel like that's what you were seeing on screen hmm. um, we made the drums more acoustic and uh, I actually moved some of the timings of I put on a looser acoustic guitar on and they just, they just to make it feel more like what it feels like when, when they're in that pub the actual the the rap that uh, Max raps to his mom in the pub um, was a pickup later. We when we watched it back, it was originally just the whole song. We watched it back and um, felt that rap that Or needed to respond to what she was singing about. And John came up with this crazy rap. I helped him with a couple of lines, but it's basically John. <laughs> it's like that's awesome. That's really cool. I would have never known. Good. <laughs> well, Meet in the Middle is my absolute favorite track uh, in the film. It's so beautiful and a, and a beautiful duet. And it's so interesting that the song in the film starts out as, as something totally different, a totally different song. Can you walk me through how you constructed that? Did you start with the 
quote unquote incomplete version of the song and just like they do in the film? Or did you start with the completed version and kind of break it down? That is a great question because John and I kind of not locked horns, but we saw it differently. John thought the best way to do it would be to write the incomplete version and then write the, you know, the final version that they sing together on the rooftop. Um, but as a songwriter, that just terrified me for some reason. I thought, no. <laughs> um, I said, let's write um, the, the fully formed version first, and then I can do a sort of deconstructed version of that. And that's kind of tell you a bit about that in a second because that's quite funny. But um, the process to get that song, the good version, done was one of the longest journeys of the movie because and not so much musically as it was lyrically just getting the tone of that right was quite quite difficult quite um it's quite a delicate piece and it's very um exposed and simple um and every word had to count and it's kind of a conversation and you need both of the personalities of the characters need to shine through it and then they need to come together as they do in the chorus and so um, that journey was really quite interesting. One, John and I had quite a lot of the song, we thought, pretty far down the, the road, and we thought we were on the right track. And we sent it over to um, Eve and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and they both had comments about what their character would say or not say. Instead of sort of batting it backwards and forwards until they were feeling that that's what my character would say. We said, why Why don't we just all get in our recording studio? Of course, the trouble was they were sh- the shooting schedule was crazy. So we grabbed a Saturday uh, in a studio in Dublin, and we just went in with what John and I had, uh, acoustic guitars. And John said, we're not leaving this room until we have this song, you know. And we just worked through each verse until... We were happy with it. They were happy with it. And then they just literally got on the microphone there and then, and we recorded it. So it was actually done by the end of the day. So there you go. That's amazing. It took us four months to get to the point where we finished it in a day. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I love that moment when Jeff plays the song for Flora, the the ink his his original version for Flora. And he can tell she's she's not feeling it. And they talk about that. And he talks about how how exposed he feels and seeing the look of disinterest in her eyes or in anybody's eyes when that moment happens. As a musician and artist yourself, how do you how do you sort of combat that? Do you still have those moments of opening yourself up artistically and feeling like, oh well, this person's just not not feeling this beautiful thing that I made. How do you how do you kind of deal with those moments? Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I started as a recording artist and a singer, songwriter, musician in bands, and then and then I kind of went into the area of writing music with writing songs with other artists and for other artists and producing for those artists. So the thing you just reminded me there is when you get together with an artist for the very first time you've never met, that's terrifying enough anyway. You you tend to try and prepare a few a few ideas. Actually, this is I'm thinking about this live now, but this is what happened to, to my journey because of exactly what you're asking. So the early version is I would prepare a few ideas for the artist coming in and Sometimes they've, in their mind, they want to do something completely different, and my ideas are completely irrelevant, and that's that 
that feeling and you've got to recover really quickly and find something that works for them. And then I discovered through that process that I was better not to go in with any ideas at all, which is much scarier. But I had to respond instantly to what they wanted to. So the, so every session, every new session would start with me sitting down, put the kettle on, talk about their lives, but also talk about what they're listening to and, you know, what music they love, what music they grew up with, and try to quickly get something in that area. So so much scarier. And the, and the other one is when you play something, even if you consider it to be finished, you play it to someone else for the very first time. And it must be, you know, playing it in a theatre, playing your movie in a theatre must be that multiplied by a thousand times. But as a, as a songwriter, producer, it's when you play it, usually when you play it to the record company for the first time. Mm. And, and if you do it live and you're all in a room together, it always sounds like it's on half speed. The adrenaline must sort of do some weird thing. You know, it's like, God, I wish I'd sped that up, you know. It's like, <laughs> so. But yeah, it never stops being terrifying in the short answer. <laughs> sure. And um, in, the, in the film, it kind of seems like Max doesn't necessarily have that same fear. Um, uh, we have to talk about his his first real track, Dublin 07. It's so funny. And obviously it needs to sound like a kid made it in his bedroom as opposed to someone who's been in the business for so long. So how do you sort of restrain yourself or or, or how do you make it sound like Mac, Max really wrote this? So Dublin 07 and the song Juanita that she plays on the couch with acoustic guitar were both 100% John Carney songs. I, I, I worked on the recording of them and I added some bits and pieces. But John exactly for the reason that you just said he wanted to write something on his garage band at home so when it when it happened in the room that's exactly what it felt so in the room what you're actually hearing is john's original demo with the vocals muted and then the the actors doing their vocals on top of john's original demo and then we sort of i developed it a little bit for the the score and for the final mix, but it's 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 that is so much John Carney and hilarious John Carney. <laughs> yeah, well, you brought up the score. Of course, you don't just do the songs in the film; you do the score as well. Uh, how, what has that process been like? Um, it, how how different do you find writing songs versus writing a score for a film? The process is quite different, and the the. The reason's almost technical in the sense that the songs needs to be at a level where they can shoot to the songs or it can, you know. So the songs all need to be finished in the first part before the, sh the shoot starts. So you kind of know what they are. They, de they definitely develop throughout the process and things change, as I say, we add a rap or, we, you know, whatever. But um, the score happens when they start editing the film. And that's when I was just literally sitting at my my home studio and in communication every day with John and Stephen, the editor. Um, they were in Dublin. And we were just, I'd be sent a clip, I'd respond to that, send it across. John might have some additions or subtract, subtractions. And that 
delicate balance thing with score. We always try to kind of keep the DNA of the songs in the score. So there's a lot of similar chords to the songs and stuff. So we kind of have a starting place. But um, it's amazing how a different piece of music, the effect it has on um, how you feel when you watch a, uh, a piece of film. And I would say that my big learning curve personally, because all the score stuff I've done has been with John, is that when you're new to scoring, I think the 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 temptation is to overgild the lily and also to to put too much emotion into things where the emotion should really be happening on coming at you from what the actors are doing. And so John has this very restrained thing about score. It should always just feel like it's kind of just floating in the air. It's never, you know, there are exceptions to that. But the the approach I've learned through working with John through through Sing Street, Modern Love, and now Flora and Son is that I stay out of the way as much as possible. I try to base things on the songs and... And I listen very carefully to what to his reaction to what I send him in case there are tweaks. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a slightly it's almost more complex in a way. Uh, I guess it's a more complex thing to get the balance right. Well, sim- on a similar vein, I saw a quote from you when you were talking about when John brought you onto Sing Street and you said at that time that you you didn't feel like you had really written for characters before, written music for characters. Uh, so how do, how do you think the process of these films has has stretched you as a songwriter or musician or however you feel stretched? Um, actually, it has expanded my horizons massively working with John on all of these things. Um, and it's just been a, a total thrill but it's also a roller coaster because you don't always get it right it's so exciting for me at this stage in my career to be learning all of this new stuff on it and it's like a constant it's on a daily basis you learn something from every cue that you do and every song that you do and, and obviously every movie but john has taught me so much my sensibility when making records is this, this search for perfection. And when writing for char- these characters that have come from John's imagination, they're not always perfect and they're not, and they shouldn't always be perfect. And so my sort of biggest learning curve has been to leave the ego at the door and try and make something that feels honest to the characters that are on the screen and not it's not should never sound like me do you know what i mean it should always sound like them so yeah that's a that's a big one but there'll be so many learning um processes throughout this well back in march rolling stone released their 50 their list of 50 best tunes by made-up musicians and drive it like you stole it is is all the way up at number 11 and wow. now, as a not made up musician, uh, what do you think about about making that list? That's incredible. That's so brilliant. Just great. <laughs> Drive it like you stole it. That was that was a fun one because I I that was one of the ones where John just set me free. He said I need a I need a song for this scene. And I I don't know what it is, but I, I want it to be influenced by Huey Lewis and the news. I want it to be influenced by Hall and Notes and. He told me about the scene, and it was the one scene musical 
number in Sing Street where they didn't have to sound like themselves really they had to they could sound like because it was in their imagination it's the one scene where it's it's imaginary and so it doesn't have to sound like the band um so that was so it was it was kind of very liberating in all of those ways and i basically wrote and did the demo in a day and a half or something and then I just it was it was a great period of time. The references were great for me. I loved hollow notes and stuff. And so I I just I got a lot of great joy out of doing that. And I think that's the joy that people feel when they when they listen to it. The joy was me absolutely having a ball when I was doing it, you know, playing the big 80s synthesizer. <laughs> Well, maybe something from Flora and Son will uh, will make a future version of the list. Gary, it is such a pleasure, like I said, to talk with you. Uh, I appreciate your work so much. I've already listened to Meet in the Middle a hundred times conservatively, so I'm excited to, excited to keep listening to that and, uh, and, and for more people to discover the film. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's lovely to chat to you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interviews with the writer and director for Flora and Son, John Carney and the film songwriter and composer Gary Clark here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Floor and Sun is now currently playing in limited release and will have a global premiere on Apple TV Plus on Friday, September 29th. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support. Which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.